Well, it's good to see all of you. Um, if you're here for the first time, yeah, um, it is wonderful to see you. If you're here for uh, the umpteenth time, it's good to see you as well. Um, if we have any guests in the house, maybe someone who is worshiping with us for the very first time, if we haven't already greeted you, I just want to see that hand and we can show you some love. I see that hand there. Um, it's great to see you. Would this be trying to applaud? Yeah. Applause are appropriate and welcomed and encouraged at Gospel Hope Church, as well as amens, hitting of backs of pews, and other gestures of affirmation. Yeah, you may do all of those. All right, there you go. And note-taking, highly encouraged. Um, all right, well, good stuff. Well, as you all know, we have been trekking through uh, the book of 1 Kings and a very narrow slice of it, looking at the life of Elijah under the heading of a series entitled Going Against the Grain. And what we've been trying to learn is how it is that God would call us to apply our faith in practical life in ways that inevitably, if we're following him, are going to go against the grain of society, go against the grain of culture, maybe even go against the grain of family, depending on your family's posture uh, of redemption and their, their sympathies toward the gospel. Uh, but today we're going to also see some going against the grain, but it won't necessarily be us that's doing it. It'll be God who goes against the grain in a way. And you're going to understand what I mean by that in just a few moments, but if you would, pray with me. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, I come before you this morning, and I surrender to you my notes. I surrender, Lord God, my understanding of Scripture. We surrender to you this moment. We believe that you have carved out for yourself as an act of obedience uh, for the local church a specified time to gather for encouragement, edification, and perfection, to teach and preach the word, Lord God. This is not just our tradition. This, Lord God, this is an act of obedience that we would yield our lives to this. And as we gather collectively, oh God, um, I'm begging that we would experience uh, many of uh, the promises of Scripture concerning this kind of engagement, that we would experience a demonstration of your Holy Spirit, that we would further clarify the gospel. Your son would be beautified. Your name would be uplifted. Our faith in you would be deepened and increased. Our understanding of the scriptures and how it is that you have preserved them for us, knit them together, and how you indeed have spoken in time and history, and your word is actually living. Would you allow that, Lord God, uh, to leap off the page? I pray, oh God, that there will be a demonstration of the Spirit by way of you locating each one of us in our respective situations in life in a way that no preacher could possibly do with precision that we would have an encounter with you, that, Lord God, even while I'm speaking, it becomes apparent, Heavenly Father, that you're the one who is actually at work, and would you allow that evidence to even, Lord God, be fleshed out in me? I pray, O oh God, that we would experience the Word of God as it describes itself, being good for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that we would be thoroughly furnished for every good work. Lord God, equip us to be a church that displays the reconciling hope of the gospel. Equip us as individuals who are busy about your business, and that is uh, making disciples who are growing in the gospel as a family while on mission. Lord God, help us even in our several identities. Lord God, we would become all the more dependent children. We would be intentional disciple makers, generous stewards, responsible siblings, and servant leaders, oh God that we would not leave off any of those things that are found in Scripture as a part of who you call us to be. Help us, Lord. We cannot do these things by way of force of will or intellect or emotional conjuring. We need you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
So again, as we mentioned, we are in this series entitled um, Going Against the Grain. This is the next to the last message. And so even if you've not heard any or just a few of the past messages, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to the series, but you will not be left out uh, if you have not heard any of those. This message comes to us from the book of 1 Kings, and 1 Kings belongs to really kind of a stack, a section of the scriptures found in 1 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and 1 and 2 Chronicles. And the purpose of those books collectively is to give Israel, the first audience to receive them, to give Israel uh, somewhat of a diary of the historic decline that they experience as a nation when they choose a king other than God himself. First and second Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles offer us three different perspectives of what's happening in Israel. One perspective is from the, from the voice or from the perspective of a prophet, like Samuel. Others show us the, the, what's happening in Israel from the perspective of the throne, i.e. the kings. And Chronicles show us yet another perspective from the vantage point of the priest. Now, your antennas theologically should be going up because you've heard that phraseology, prophet, priest, and king, because that is the label that we give to Christ. He is the perfect and absolute prophet, priest, and king. Why does that title matter? Why does that reality matter? And how does it lay against the books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles? Well, if you're watching the historic political and spiritual decline of Israel through the lens of these books, God isn't just trying to defeat them or burden them. He's also trying to cultivate in them an aspiration for the more perfect prophet, priest, and king as they see that even their best earthly leaders cannot hold accountable, hold a candle to the ultimate leader who is Christ. You see, the prophet is supposed to represent the heart of God to the people, the word of God to the people. The priest is supposed to represent the hearts of the people toward God. And the kings are supposed to administer the will and the momentum and the movement and the advancement of God's kingdom in the kingdom. And so when you look at these three books or these six books and these three segments together, what you're getting is this, what I would call, again, a diary of the people's decline as they drift from God, but yet a diary of the divine faithfulness regardless of how much they decline. Throughout each of these six books, you see this beautiful portrayal of God remaining wonderfully and beautifully consistent even when Israel is at their high times or even at their low times. And so the section of scripture that we're looking at now is one where we get a chance to look at the life of Ahab, who has been noted by the scriptures as being the worst king in Israel's history. The worst. But what's so interesting about this is also throughout the series, we have been giving ourselves the privilege of taking on a number of different perspectives. We've been allowed to sit in the audience and to be contemporary churchgoers who just kind of eat, sit there and eat our popcorn and the pastor makes a point to which we can amen and go, yeah, yeah, Pastor Rod, that's true. Look at God, he going to work on them Israelites. He going to work on their enemies. We've been allowed to sit in that seat and it's okay to sit in that seat sometimes. We've been allowed to sit in the seat of people like Obadiah who privately obeyed God and then was called up to obey him in a more robust and public way. And he had some fears about doing that. And we had to learn how to be like Obadiah and maybe just kind of trounce out the voice of some of our fears. 
We've had the privilege of seeing ourselves through the lens of an Elijah and say, oh yeah, that's me. Sometimes I've got really robust and courageous faith and I'm doing awesome things for God and trusting him like nobody's business. And then occasionally, I, like Elijah, I have a little bit of a slump in my trust in God. We've been, we've been privileged enough to see ourselves as Elijah at times. But today, we have the dubious privilege and task of seeing ourselves as Ahab. Why would we want to do that? Well, you're going to find out in just a few moments. When I look at this diary of historic decline, but yet this diary of God's historic faithfulness, in 1 Kings chapter 21, we're going to look at the entirety of the chapter. I want you to pray by a work of God that we are not in here for two hours and that I don't have to speak too fast to get us all the way through. To hopefully help out with that, let me tell you at a very high level what the story is about here in 1 Kings chapter 21. In 1 Kings chapter 21, it opens with a man named Naboth. Naboth has a vineyard that is adjacent to or right around Ahab's palace there in Samaria. Ahab sees Naboth's field and his vineyard, and he says he wants it. So he goes and tries to negotiate with Naboth and say, hey, I'd like to buy this field from you. And Naboth says, never, I will not give you my father's inheritance. He then goes and says, well, I'll give you an even better piece of land. Just give me this one. And Naboth says, no, I've already told you I will not give it. For him, it's not about real estate. It is about relationship. If you know anything about the history of Israel, the pieces of property that they were distributed at their entry into the promised land was a distinct expression of God's goodness and favor to their families. He did not want to negotiate on it or give up that land. Ahab goes back to his palace, and his countenance is falling, as the Bible would say, or he's drooping. He's vexed. He's pouting. He's looking like one of our children who doesn't want to go to, to Gospel Hope Kids or doesn't want to leave Gospel Hope Kids, right? He's just kind of dragging. Jezebel sees him and says, why, why are you pouting? Why are you so vexed? Why are you down? And he goes, well, I wanted to buy Naboth's land, but he wouldn't give it to me. And she goes, well, aren't you the king of Israel? You deserve that land. I'm going to get it for you. So she crafts a plan, and she writes a series of letters uh, uh, to the people in the land, and she says, and she signs Ahab's name. She crafts a plan that calls a meeting, and for Naboth to be brought to that meeting, and the Bible says that two men sat on either side, and they raised a false accusation against Naboth that he had spoken against God and spoken against King. And as a result of this malicious accusation, Naboth was then taken out to the edge of the city, stoned and killed for this supposed blasphemy that he had committed against the throne and against God himself. Following that, Ahab then goes out to take ownership of the field that has been left by this man who has been killed under malicious circumstances. And Elijah is sent by God to meet him in the field and say, man, you see what you've done? You once again have, have underscored, bold, highlighted, and put an exclamation point on unprecedented evil like has never been done before in Israel. And I'm going to punish you, and I'm going to punish Jezebel for doing it. Ahab hears these words, and in an astonishing fashion, like we've never seen anywhere else in the rest of the story that we've been reading, he's broken, and he humbles himself before the Lord. And God highlights his repentance and says, look how Ahab has repented before me or humbled himself. I will not destroy him as I have planned, but I will show mercy and forego that to subsequent generations. The worst king in Israel receives the best of what God has to offer. How does this happen? Well, what I want to explore for you today is this. 
Everyone is capable of an extraordinary level of depravity, but no one is beyond the extraordinary reach of God's mercy. I would ask you to repeat that after me, but it's probably a mouthful, so I'll just say it again for you. Everyone is capable, everyone meaning me, everyone meaning you, everyone including Ahab, or again, we get to be Ahab today, not a very savory character. Everyone is capable of an extraordinary level of depravity, but no one is excluded from or beyond an extraordinary reach of the Lord's mercy. Now, I want to make sure you hear that statement as both a warning and a welcome into worship. But in no way do I want you to be wooed into believing that you have a hall pass to stay in sin and that because God's long reach of his mercy somehow will always go get us regardless of how deep we go, that that somehow equals that I should feel comfortable in living a corrupt life. That is not the impulse of today's message. So what exactly does it mean that every one of us is capable of extraordinary levels of depravity, but no one is beyond the extraordinary reach of the Lord's mercy? Why are we so capable? Well, let's explore a few words in detail found at the opening of 1 Kings chapter 21. Look at verse 1. This is the stuff that I summarized for you, but I want to just give you a little taste word for word. Now, Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better one for it. If it seems good to you to give it to you, I'll give you the value of money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you this inheritance of my fathers. And he went to his house and he was vexed and he was sullen. And when, when, and Nab because of what Naboth of Jezreel said to him, or the Jezreelite said to him, I will not give you my inheritance. And of course, in the subsequent verses, when his wife saw him, as I des described for you earlier, she said, don't worry about it, I'll get it for you. And Jezebel, his wife, down in verse 7 says, do you not govern Israel? Do you not govern? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth and the Jezreelite. Now, I've already told you the story of how she went about getting it for him, but why does this matter to us? Number one, Ahab's depravity is just a sneak preview of what plagues all of humanity. This is why I need to see myself as Ahab. Because as much as I would love to point at the television of Scripture and go, look at this guy, I hate him, his character, every time he shows up, it makes my, 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 my brow furrow. Don't you have characters like that on television? Every movie that they play, you hate to see them coming because they're always a villain. This is how I feel about Ahab. But in this moment, I'm not allowed to look at him as though he's this unsavory character. I have to see him as myself. What is it about him that gives me a sneak preview of my own depravity? I'll tell you what. Because depravity is generational. Remember this for your notes. It is generational, it is environmental, and it is relational. It is generational in this regard. Jeroboam, Omri, as well as other kings that preceded him that are related to him also worked in unprecedented evil. And the Bible continues to connect those dots for us that what Ahab is doing is connected to the fathers and the forefathers before him who operated similarly. Well, I, ladies and gentlemen, am the same way. I'm not saying that my, my dad who's sitting right over there is a bad person, but here's what you must know about us as human beings. We inherit our father's sin. We do not inherit their sanctification. 
You and I inherit sin from Adam. Uh, it was it, David, a, a good king, according to the scriptures, put it this way concerning his own sin. In Psalm 51, verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not saying that he was conceived out of wedlock. He's not saying that his mom was a woman of the night and that he was born under some kind of dubious circumstances. He is saying that we are all born into sin, and it shapes the way we move. As far as I know, both sets of my grandparents on both sides of my family tree are all followers of Jesus Christ. I cannot inherit faith in Jesus. We inherit sin, not sanctification. My, my, my father prays daily, studies his Bible uh, 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 provocatively, trusts God deeply. I didn't inherit any of that. I inherit his sin. In order for me to inherit righteousness, I must be born again, and therefore I get a new father by way of adoption. You do not inherit sanctification regardless of what, how beautiful a view you have of your mother or father. You and I inherit sin. When you look at your children and you see them at their worst, that came out of you. When you see them working at their best, that came out of Christ. Depravity is generational, regardless of what great disciplines we see modeled by our parents. Even as Jesus told Nicodemus, you cannot see the kingdom. You cannot enter unless you be born again. Generationally, we inherit, yes, we may inherit some good habits, but we do not inherit holiness. But depravity is not only generational, as it is a roll down, it is directly transferable from Adam through each subsequent generation that comes out of him. It is also environmental. It is environmental. Many of us would like to say colloquially that, you know, oh, certain people are a product of their environment. No, we are all products of our environment, but I don't mean that in some kind of way like, oh, some people grew up on a rough side of town. No, the Bible defines the environment in which we are all growing up in that is equally depraved as follows. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, for all uh, that is in the world are the lust of the flesh, the desires of the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That is not from the Father, but it is from the world. So whether you're in Buckhead or whether you're in Bankhead, whether you're in Roswell, Alpharetta, or whether you're, in, you're off of Cab Creek Parkway, or whatever you believe to be one of the more bad and busted parts of town, I don't care what you think or how you label areas of the city, whether it was Herndon Homes or whether it was, you know, Castile Homes or wherever you, you did your life, the environments that we're in are all saturated with lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Our depravity is accentuated not only generationally, but it is also environmental. But guess what? It is also relational. People who we have within our orbit, in our relationships, they also accentuate, call out, and are a part of the depravity of our lives. Amos chapter 3, verse 3 says, do not two walk together unless they are agreed or unless they're in agreement with each other. We see this front and center in the life of Ahab as he is married to someone who is marred the legacy of Israel by introducing idolatry in unprecedented ways. Depravity is generational, it is environmental, and it is also relational. How many of you here in the city of Atlanta have ever driven by uh, a car accident? You see a vehicle that is on the side of the road. Yeah, there we go. At least one person has seen that. You drive by, you see a car accident. 
most of the time you look around and if you're going slow enough, you're trying to see like skid marks and glass, points of impact. How did that vehicle get turned that way? Ooh, look how, much, look how far they're up against the wall. You're trying to see if there's any first responder vehicles. You're looking for ambulances to see if anybody's, you know, kind of, you know, in a desperate way. But one of the things that we all look for, and we have not covered this as a church, but we're doing it. It's not in the handbook of how you look at accidents. But one of the things that we all look for is did the airbags deploy? Do we not? And when we see the airbags, we say, ooh, that was bad. You know what? The grace of God is the airbag of the believer's life. Because generationally and environmentally and relationally, we are, our depravity always has us on a collision course. Things that we did control and do, things that we cannot control and do. But the airbag of God's grace is something that we do not see until we are in our most desperate position. I never want to see the airbags in my car, ever. I want them to stay behind the little panel right there that says airbag. I want them to stay behind the horn. I want them to stay in the ceiling and under the curtain. I do not want to ever see my airbag. But I do want to drive with the confidence that they are there. So much so is the grace of God when I talk about all this depravity that is working in our environment, in our lives. I, without the grace of God, I am on a collision course that will inevitably throw me out of control and cause my life to be radically lost. It is only by the airbag of God's grace that we have not been thrown free of this life by all of our foolishness to be lost forever. That is the only stopgap for our depravity. It is God's grace. It is not because you come from a line of good Christian people or that you went to a private school or you went to a home school. It is the grace of God that counteracts our depravity. And that grace of God is often taken for granted until we realize how desperately we need it. If any of us, if any of you have had the dubious an unfortunate reality of being involved in a car accident when the airbags did deploy. And you go back out to the junkyard a couple of days later to get your purse and your kids' toys from underneath the seat and find all your other personal stuff. You realize how the, the wreckage impacts you? You then see and recognize in full view the grace of God in a way that you didn't know it before the bags deployed, do you not? If you've never experienced this, just go walk through the junkyards of America and then look at all these vehicles and you'll see these ready evidence of all this heinous wreckage. And you say, and, and the first thing you ask yourself is, I wonder, did they live? This is a walking example of our own lives under the influence of our depravity. Minus the grace of God actively stopping our fall, we would all be like Ahab or worse. Let's look at the second segment of this. 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 8 through 11. In verses 8 through 11, this is where the scriptures outline Jezebel's very specific crafty plan. She wrote two letters in Ahab's name. She wrote them in his name. She sealed them with his seal. She sent the letters to the elders and leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the table and set two worthless men opposite him. Hold on to that imagery. It's necessary for the end of the message. She, she had him set at the head of the table with two worthless men on either side of him and say that he has cursed God and king and then take him out and stone him to death and, um, um, at the edge or outside the city. When we look at Jezebel's great work or her gruesome work, I want you to note that this is one among many of her appearances in the story of 1 Kings. 
But I want you to also note that she is never a foreground character. She's always playing a role in the background. It was in the background that she incited drift in devotion by bringing in idol worship through Baal. It was in the background that she was, uh, that the scriptures mentioned that she butchered the prophets of God to try to silence the voice of God. Because remember, the prophets represent God's voice to the people. It was in the background that she is now working in her husband's heart to bolster selfishness, making him believe that what he desires is just from God and he ought to follow his own heart and have that. It is Jezebel's handiwork that is simply a personification of Satan's daily work. Jezebel is alive today. She may not be alive in this historic form of, uh, of, 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 of Ahab's wife, but she is alive and well in the personification of the work of Satan. What she did at a moment, Satan is doing daily in the lives of believers, and here's how. She worked to incubate, that is to provide a safe, warm place where his iniquitous desires could grow and become full-blown. James, in the New Testament, put it this way. In chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, and then that desire, when it is conceived, brings, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-grown, brings forth death. Notice the birth language. What Ahab did was simply said, here is something that I desire, and what she did was just simply bring an environment where that desire could be incubated until it was full-blown, and then it brought forth death. That's all sin does. You ever notice how most babies, I would say 99% of babies are cute when they're born. And because they're so cute, we have no sense of their depravity. I would say 99% of our sin is cute when it is conceived. It's not until it gets incubated and grows up and becomes something that we despise, that we recognize the death that is in it. Jezebel comes alongside and she helps to incubate these desires that seem simple, but they are a part or departure from God's will. Jezebel historically has influenced a direction that does not honor God, that does not align with God. How? Through unwise and unbiblical counsel. Psalm 1, she is the antithesis of what we are called to have in our lives in Psalm 1-1. Blessed is the man and woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffer. Let me tell you something about counsel. It is super critical who you have in your life and who you listen to. And let me tell you, you have a counsel whether you like it or not, and let me tell you who they are. They are some of the people who are the loudest in your life. They're the people who not only have much volume to say, but they say it loud and they say it a lot. There's a counsel. You've got a counsel. You not only have someone who is, who is loud in your life, but you also have some people who you love. Jezebel is Ahab's wife. I'm certain that he loves her. But there are people in our lives who we love dearly, who we cannot listen to because their hearts are not aligned with the Lord. And even though we believe they are speaking with our best interest, they are not speaking with God's best interest for our life, regardless of how much you might love them. There are those who are loud because they have much to say. But guess what? There are also those in our lives who are very learned. They're more learned than we are on various topics. They're super wise. Everything that they say is pithy and clever and well-referenced and resourced and, and super footnoted. And they've got the degrees that we wish we had. They've walked the path and gone to the, the academies that we wish we could have gotten into. They have undeniable intellect. They are more learned than we are, but their advice is not anchored in Scripture. Therefore, they lead us astray if we let them into our counsel. 
There are some people who, are, who we've led into our council who need to be in our mission field. They're in my life for a reason so that I can lead them to the Lord, not them to tell me how to follow the Lord. But I want you to notice the nature. Notice the nature of what she does. Notice the nature of Jezebel's handiwork and even Satan's daily work in our lives. It is not to become a very public, forward-facing uh, feature in our lives. It is to sit in the background and to facilitate my desires to make it seem as if my idea. Jezebel sent out the letters in Ahab's name and with his seal. If Satan were to make himself clear and plain in our lives, we would all run to the cross because we would see the, the despicableness of evil. He never wants to be seen. He wants to disguise himself as an angel of light. He wants to hide behind humor. He wants to hide behind wit. He wants to hide behind uh, all of these different facets and places and favorite flavors that we would never detect that this is not from God. But what he does is he is inciting drift. Drift, a slow, subtle, a slow and subtle moving away from truth. It's possible in all of our lives. I was telling the folks at 9.30, um, and you guys know this about me. You, you've grown up with me as your pastor, uh, some of you, and some of you are visiting, so don't be shocked by this. Um, just, an, just an incredibly random person with a lot of wild um, excursions in my brain. But when I go on a cruise, some people are caught up by the meals, you know, the sliding board, the rock wall, you know, the rock wall, and all that other kind of stuff. You know what fascinates me about cruise ships? It's when I'm walking up to get on it, how big the chains and ropes are that have to hold it in place. Like, I'm a, I almost kind of, some kind of missed the ship because I'm like, what? We, well, I know we got to go inside, but I just want to see, is it like two times wider than me? Like, where did they even get that much rope? Where did they get that much steel? Where did they get that much cable? It's fascinating to me. But why is it necessary? Because it would look as if that much tonnage is impossible to drift. It doesn't matter how heavy the ship is. It doesn't matter how many verses you've memorized. It doesn't matter how many degrees you have. It doesn't matter how much you know about the Bible. It doesn't matter how, much, how weighty you are in the scriptures. It doesn't matter. All of us are capable of drift if we are not effectively moored and anchored down. And it is, it is our commitment to quality worship that keeps us moored. Because a cruise ship, you, you can drift. And the Bible says in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14, the reason that pastors and teachers and evangelists have been given to the church is so that we would be perfected, equipped, and, and, and made ready for the work of ministry, and that we would not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Tossed to and fro. You get the imagery? Like a ship unmoored. We not only need to be taught well, but we need to be tethered by quality worship. Ahab grew up, I'm certain that Ahab knows the Bible, but he, he's unmoored because he's not tethered to quality worship. He's not worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. In other words, what he knows to be true about God is not translating to a daily worship, a practice. He might be singing some of the best worship hymns of his life. He might be enjoying melodies. Who knows? He may know, I mean, he may know a lot of good songs. But is that worship working its way out in a lifestyle that keeps him tethered to the person of God so that he does not drift? This is why Jesus says, not only do I need to say good stuff in the right spirit, to worship in spirit, but I also need to worship him in truth. And does that spirit and truth translate into the way that I live and not just words? I need a good counsel in my life. I need people who meet this criteria. 
I need people in my life that will facilitate a pursuit of holiness, not just a pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness is what Jezebel is. The pursuit of happiness is what I would love to pick up the phone and receive a text message from, some daily affirmations of my intrinsic goodness. I would love to just dial into and subscribe to a website that would, would pump me full of affirmations about how good I already am and what a great day I'm going to have. I would love that kind of Jezebel sentiment in my life. But what I need is not someone to facilitate my pursuit of happiness, but someone who can facilitate my pursuit of holiness, who will tell me when I have blown it and they have no fear of losing our friendship by telling me that, Rod, you're missing it. We need these people. We need them. Some of them may naturally be in your circle of counsel, but others of them need to be recruited, while other relationships need to be demoted. But that's not all. Look at verses 20 through 24. It says in Ahab, this is after Naboth has now been lied on, murdered at the edge of town, and stoned. The Lord sends Elijah to, Nabal, I mean, to, to, to Ahab, and here's the conversation. And Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself. Interesting words. You have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, this is the Lord speaking. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up. I will cut you off. And Ahab, and, from, and Ahab from every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like that of the house of Bashar, the son of Ahijah. For the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin, and of Jezebel, the Lord said also, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. And anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. And there is no one who has sold himself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. And he acted very abominably going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the people of Israel. Pause right there. Elijah's hard conversation just portrays the kind of conviction that is needed to produce heart conversion. Because immediately after that, Ahab humbles himself and God recognizes it. Look at these words. Look at this. Look at this. It says, and Ahab heard these words, and he tore his clothes, and he put sackcloth on his flesh, and he fasted and lay, lay in sackcloth, and he went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, have you seen how Ahab humbled himself before me? Because he was humbled, he has humbled himself before me. I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring disaster upon his house. So the Lord is not mocked. He is going to deal with sin, but he can still show mercy. Ahab, the worst king in Israel's history, having taken the nation down the most deplorable road of all time. And God says, I can still reach down that hole and pull him up with my mercy if we can meet in agreement on the nature of his sin. 
The kind of conversation that Elijah has, Elijah has to have a hard conversation that simply, and it just prefers, portrays the kind of conviction that is needed to produce heart conversion. You see, before I have a hard conversation with the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit has a hard conversation with me about the nature of my sin, I am always operating under the impression that I can navigate the presence of my sin in life. I have a plan B through Z. That's only when I see my sin listed and I've chosen one that I like and have chosen to keep it. I always think, we always think we can navigate the general presence of sin. We sell ourselves on the idea, well, we're all depraved anyway, why should I walk around being so defeated? But notice what the Holy Spirit does here through the ministry of Elijah and what he needs to do in our, or what he does do in our life as well. He doesn't just enumerate his sin, he then illuminates. So enumerate, show them on a list in numbers. Illuminate, shed light on them that allows you to see their full import and the consequences that follow. This is why the scriptures tell us not to quench the voice of the Holy Spirit because when he is speaking, he wants to articulate in full color what your sin actually is. This is why going to a confessional and just closing the door or pulling back the curtain and just enumerating your sin isn't enough. The Holy Spirit must illuminate for us its full impact. Let me explain in more contemporary terms. Just a couple of days ago, myself and Pastor Eddie, he's standing back there in the back. Raise your hand, Pastor Eddie. I was sitting in the uh, conference room, and I had a freshly, crisply cool, right from the refrigerator, can of Diet Coke. I had yet to pop the seal. And I was just sitting there just appreciating it and getting ready to enjoy it. And Pastor Eddie walks in, and he goes, you know, Pastor Rod, I just left my doctor's appointment, and they shared with me some risk points about uh, Diet Coke, and I love it. So Pastor Eddie and I, we have a shared love for Diet Coke. Oh, we love it in every way that we can get it. On tap, in the can, in the bottle, in the glass, lukewarm, cold, on ice, straight. I don't care how you like, we love Diet Coke. Right? After a meal, before a meal, in the morning, in the night, we love Diet Coke. Yes, green eggs and ham, that's right. We love Diet Coke. And so, and we felt like we was doing ourselves some favors because it's just zero calories, it's zero sugar and all this. But apparently, when you, open, when you read the back of the can, the ingredients are enumerated. They are listed. They are in plain view, but they are not illuminated. In other words, there is an ingredient that when it is illuminated, the full impact on your life is now understood in a way that is not understood just by reading the can. You hear what I'm saying now? What happens with our sin is we get accustomed to routine confession. Lord, I just illuminate, I just, I, I, I enumerate, I inventory my sins before you. Here they are by name. Now let's get on with it. But what the Holy Spirit does is he comes to illuminate. Now let me show you the deep, dark, depraved consequences and the deleterious effect that that is going to have on your life. Then we are ripe for repentance not just reading our sins off like a rap sheet. And when we reach that place, God is there with us because we are now in agreement with him. I'll, I've quoted several times, the Greek word for confession is homo logeu. Come on now, Marcus, somebody in the room. Homo, same, logeu, to say. 
when I come into agreement and say the same thing about my sin that God does, repentance is ready. We're ready for repentance. When I say the same thing about Christ, if you would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he's down on the cross, when you come into agreement with God on who Jesus is, not just enumerate, but you've been illuminated to understand who, who Jesus is and what he comes to do, then salvation occurs. And so what is happening here in the life of Ahab that we can agree with or that we can understand? In this text, I believe you see two major characters, and there is one who I did not give full light, but I want to go back to. Naboth, who is at the beginning of the story, and then a man who is later killed, reveals just a little bit of an echo of the ministry of Jesus. Naboth is an innocent man who was brought up on charges that he did not commit. Jesus, too, was, was, was brought up on charges of having spoken against leadership and having spoken against God blasphemy and saying that he would tear down the temple and all this other kind of stuff and against the king. He had two worthless men on either side of him. It was Jesus who was then also slain, taken to the outside of town and hung out to mercy. We can find mercy because of the good and better Naboth, the one who really fulfills what it looks like to be lied upon, to be treacherously wearing the sins of others for something that he did not do, but then he is raised up and approved by God. And so the gospel declaration in today's text is simply this. There is no hole or decline that is so deep that God is not willing to reach. As Psalm 136 and 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. In the King James, by the way, uh, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, uh, for he is good and his mercy endureth forever. God does not get tired of giving and showing people mercy, but the distribution of mercy is on his terms. Listen, I don't know where you are in your life. I don't know what you've done. I don't know how, I don't care how long you have done it. There is no single singular sin regardless of its gravity. There is no series of sins regardless of its duration. There is no history of sin regardless of how much it courses through your family that is so deep and depraved that God cannot reach down and show you mercy. Not a single one, not a single group of sins. But will you agree with God that it is sin? Amen. Will you agree with God that it is sin? Because somebody's got to pay. And God says, somebody's got to pay. And I'm willing to pay, but will you agree that it's my son that's making the payment? And will you agree that it should be you? He says, mercy is on deck, if you can agree with God in that way. So, here's what I want to ask. Two things. As um, Isaiah is playing, what is the Naboth's vineyard in your life? What is that thing that either out of convenience or desire, you've grown to want more than God? Seems subtle on the surface, but you recognize that that's leading you in a direction that is away from God. That's the first question. What is the vineyard? What is the one thing that you want? You're starting to want just as much as God. Most Christians will never say, I want something more than God. It don't even sound right coming out the mouth. Give you a bad taste. But will we admit that there are some things that I want just as much as God? What is the Naboth vineyard in your life? 
the thing that you want just as much as God. And then number two, who is your Jezebel? Or what is your Jezebel? What is that loud, learned, or highly beloved voice and influence that you know for a fact, regardless of how long you know them, they're, yes, they are your ride or die. Yes, they've, they've given you some good tips in a variety of different cases in life, but you know for a fact that they ought not belong in your counsel. They are influencing and incubating your pursuit of happiness, but not your pursuit of holiness. Who is your Jezebel? Maybe it's a, book, maybe it's a trusted author that you put on the same shelf with the gospel. Maybe it is a, a family member. Maybe it's a spouse that don't read the word or their, their hearts are, are, are not aligned with God. Close childhood friend, fellow coworker, an esteemed professor that knows infinitely more than you. Who is the Jezebel in your life? Who is that voice? Maybe it's just a, a, a page on Instagram that you subscribe to that pops out daily little nuggets of pseudo-wisdom. Who is the Jezebel? What is the Jezebel in your life that is inciting and amplifying your depravity but making you feel comfortable with desires that do not honor God? I want us to pray about those. I want us to think about those. I'm going to pray for and with us. But I also want to ask our prayer team, if y'all are in the house, would y'all go to y'all's respective spaces where you make yourself available in the sanctuary for anybody who wants to pray with somebody? You can choose either. You can, you can pray with me as I'm praying here. But man, if you're, you say, Lord, I, I, I want to pray about that because I don't know what my Naboth's vineyard is. I don't know what the one thing is. I, I have an idea, but Lord, help me. I, I want to pray with somebody about this. Lord, I don't know who the Jezebel is. Well, either I know who it is and I'm having a hard time because I've been trying for years to muzzle this person's advice in my life. And my relationship with them is so close, it's hard for me to get away from them and not somehow wrinkle a relationship. I need your wisdom. Members of our prayer team are available. Would you go to them if you feel the need to do so? What's the one thing you're desiring more than God? What's the one thing that you're listening to the same as God? And they're having a disastrous effect in your life and faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, search us. Search us. Because we recognize we may have grown comfortable with certain desires and certain voices certain influences in our life because they have been there for a very, very long time. And through this message and by your spirit, you are revealing that these are not aligned with you. These desires are not from you. These voices are not from you. They don't speak for you and on your behalf. And we confess that we have a hard time getting them out of our counsel because we find comfort in other aspects of their relationship with us. We found nuggets of truthful wisdom when we read these authors or when we scroll through these pages. We found some things that we consider to be good and useful. Therefore, we're having difficulty discerning when we're getting device or we're getting advice that is divisive and leads us away from you. Lord God, would you help me help us identify the Jezebels in our life and to 
repent from listening to them and put those relationships in their proper place. Lord God, would you help me to see, help us to see the desires that we are incubating that seem innocent today, but they are going to cause me to, to, to be an indictment before you later if I don't get this out of my life. Lord God, show me what those things are. Because today they seem manageable, they seem cute, they seem harmless, they seem innocent. But Lord God, I know something is up. Lord God, would you reveal what those things are and help me to turn from it and turn toward you. And Lord God, would you replace those desires in me with the desire for the right thing? We know that all the world offers is a counterfeit to the thing that, something you really want us to have. Lord God, would you replace the counterfeits in my life so that I wouldn't incubate any desires that would take me away from you? Lord God, if we're here today and we don't know you, we need you desperately. Lord God, we've been down a deep, dark hole and we feel worse than an Ahab that no one could ever forgive us for what we've done. Lord God, would you speak to that heart and let them know that there is a God whose mercy has extraordinary and unlimited reach. If we can reach agreement with you that this is sin. Lord God, I pray for the person that does not know you today, that they would simply ask you to come into their heart and to save them from their sin, that they would agree with you that Jesus Christ died at the hands of sinful men and women, of which I am one. Lord God, would you, would you reveal to their heart how, how, Lord God, Jesus died for them and because of them, but at the same time was raised from the dead for them that they would have everlasting life. Lord God, would you move on that heart to move toward you in faith on the basis of that gospel truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's worship him.